Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. To the Joe Beam Show, sometimes called Marriage Radio. Some folks even call it the Dr. Joe Show. As we talk about marriages on this show, I've come to realize that most of the time we talk about problems, negative things, things that are going on that somehow need to be repaired, if at all possible they can be repaired. And that's always going to be again tonight. Although in the near future, I'm going to start adding in programs where we talk about things that go well. In other words, how to have good marriages. These are things that work. But because of the fact that there are so many problems out there, we talk about those. There's a common saying among those who work with marriages, and that is this. Whoever you marry, you marry a set of problems. And whoever marries you, (laughs) marries a set of problems. What that means is we are all imperfect. Or if we use a vernacular of the street, each one of us is screwed up. You do realize that, of course. And yet here we are trying our best to make it through life. And because of the fact that we commit ourselves finally to another person in this thing we call marriage, we do everything we can to make these marriages work and be good. Sometimes marriages start off easier because of the fact that there's still a lot of romance involved. And there's a little bit of a bump as people start learning how to live with each other. But, oh, you know, you're the person I've been waiting for all my life. I'm in love with you. I'm, in ha- I'm happy with you. And so we tend to put up with those bumps. And then life begins to get a little bit more difficult. For example, we know that for many marriages, the first major problem will come. Now, not all marriages by any means, but many marriages, the first major problem will come with the birth of the first child. Why? (laughs) If you allow me to say it this way, maybe it makes sense because you change babies. What I mean by that is the husband that has been getting all of the attention doesn't get that attention anymore because the baby's there, and sometimes that causes a crisis. Actually, for other people, it causes a crisis because all of a, all of a sudden it's my goodness. We, we now not only are responsible for ourselves, but there's other being we've brought into life, and some people don't like the responsibility. There are all kinds of things that can cause a marriage problem, and among those things is this thing called Lying, and that's what we'll start talking about tonight. We're actually going to be talking about several things during this program because I've been sent many, many questions. We will take some live callers as we go along, but allow me to deal with some of the questions that have come in to begin with. One of the first ones was, okay, Joe, occasionally you talk about the fact that there are three kinds of liars. Can you remind us what those are and how that works? Well, one liar, or kind of liar, I guess I should say, is the kind of liar we call the keep-out-of-trouble liar. That is, this is the person that just doesn't do well with responsibility when they know they've messed up, or at least even think they've messed up, or if they think you think they've messed up. They just don't like getting into trouble. They, don't, they want to be loved, they want to be liked, they want to be appreciated, and don't do well when they have to face up to, that wasn't a good thing. And so the get-out-of-trouble liars are the kinds who, when questioned, and they know if they tell you the truth, some kind of difficulty is going to result, will often just shade the truth enough to try to stay out of trouble. Sometimes we refer to those as white lies, little white lies, although somehow that sounds racist to me. 
what we mean by those is, well, it's not that big a lie. It's not this terrible thing when the dark cloud on the horizon. It's just this little T90 thing. Like, for example, if you see a woman with a new baby and she says, how do you like my baby? And you say, what a pretty baby. And you think, oh, my goodness. We call that the little white lie. And we say everybody does some of that. It's part of what we do in life to get along. And so those kind of lies are acceptable because they just kind of smooth things out socially. Yet they get out of trouble liar whether it's that little white lie, if he wants to call it that, or any other kind of lie, is the kind of liar that any time his or her spouse will ask a question and they know the spouse is not going to like the answer, they just don't tell the truth. They shade it in some fashion or other. It typically works out without that much of a problem until the other person finds out that the lie is going on. Hey, wait a minute. You, you told me this happened when it was actually that altogether. Why didn't you tell me the truth? And the answer is, I didn't want the negative consequences. We'll come back to that, but let me give the other two kinds of liars first. The next kind of liar is what is known as the protective liar. And that's the person who lies because they think they're actually protecting you by telling you the lie. The most vivid example is a friend of mine several years ago who was a nurse whose wife had MS and it was progressing. And as it progressed, she would say to him, I know you've studied these kinds of things. Tell me what's going to happen next. And because of the fact that he didn't want her to know what was coming next, because he figured she would dread it, she would worry about it even more. It would make her life even more miserable. He would lie to her. He would tell her something different than what he knew was likely going to happen because of her progressing disease. And then, of course, it never turned out like he told her it was going to. He knew he was misleading her. And so rather than occurring as he said it would, it occurred in a worse fashion. I guess at some point she probably started thinking, maybe you need to go back to the textbooks again. I don't think you know what you're talking about. He actually thought I'm protecting her by lying to her. I'm protecting her. Yet when finally he realized what he was doing and decided he would tell her the truth. First, he said, I need to tell you, I'm very sorry. I've known better. I've lied to you because I've tried to protect you from the things that are out there. And then they discovered that by him telling her the truth, actually, they were better able to face it because by her knowing what was coming, she was actually better equipped and prepared for those things than when she thought something else was going to occur altogether. And so the protective liar lies because I think I'm going to protect you from something that it would hurt you if you knew it. And it can range anywhere from the kind of the thing I just described about a wife who is ill all the way to, well, I heard somebody say something nasty about you the other day. And you say, hey, yeah, I saw you saw my friend. Did he talk about me? Yeah. What did he say? Oh, he said he misses you. You're a great guy. And we put them back into that category. We call what the little white lie is. In other words, I didn't do any harm. I actually smoothed the things out and made you feel a little better. But it's still the same thing in the sense of I didn't tell you the truth. And the reason I didn't tell you the truth is because I'm trying to protect you. And then the third kind of liar is what we just call the liar. These are people who just lie. They learn how to lie early in life. They've been lying all their life. I remember a young man I met several years ago when I was teaching at a university. As a matter of fact, I still teach at that university. He's no longer a student there. I guess he graduated some years ago. That would lie about everything. I mean, this guy would just make up stuff. If you were having any conversation with him, it didn't take long to realize that you just didn't believe whatever what he was telling you because you didn't know. I remember another guy, I remember another guy who actually worked for me at one point that when I finally realized that the man just lied all the time, seemingly about everything, if he were to come in soaking wet and say, man, it's raining out there, 
I got to the point where I wouldn't believe it if I didn't go peek out the window to see if actually it was raining or not. Now, those kind of people have some other things going on. They're not trying to avoid the occasional problem because they did something they shouldn't have done. They're not trying to protect you. They lie because it has become part of their nature. Now, you'll have to ask the psychologist more about that individual because I can't tell you much about him or her, except for the fact that after a while, nobody believes them. I mean, no matter what they tell you, you just don't believe them. And they can come back and tell you how sorry they are and do it again and again and again. Now, you say, well, how does this all apply to marriage? Occasionally, occasionally your spouse will do something that they know if you know about is going to get them into trouble. And so that they get out of trouble, liar. And it won't be just lies that they tell you. It'll be things they keep from you. I'm technically calling that a lie. I guess we might broaden it up and call it just deceit. Uh, several years ago, for example, I was working with a couple where that she didn't know that he had several credit cards that she didn't know anything about, some of which were in her name, and that he had been gambling, hanging out at sports bars and gambling like crazy. I guess he kept thinking at some point, I'm going to get all this money. We're going to be rich. It's going to be wonderful. And the more he lost, the more he gambled. And while he didn't directly tell a lie to her because she didn't know the other credit cards existed, she definitely was being deceived by him. And finally, they were going to buy a house together. I don't know why or how he thought she wouldn't find out then because when they made the application for the loan and the credit was run, they found out, she found out about all the things he'd been doing. And I'll never forget that scene where they all sat together in a room and she was furious. You have deceived me. You have lied why didn't you tell me the truth? Why didn't you tell me you'd gotten this credit card of that? And he started off with these excuses of, well, when I first gambled some money away, I knew if I told you then you'd be furious at me. So I thought I'd get it back. So I gambled some more and then I needed to find more money to gamble. And I saw a credit card offer come through and I did that. And he just deceived her and deceived her and deceived her. Now it was his fault. She had to decide by the way, whether or not she was going to forgive him and see if they could work out the marriage. But she had some other questions, and rightfully so, such as if you're lying about that, what else are you lying about? What else have you hidden from me? What else have you done to deceive me? And I think that was an extremely reasonable question on her part. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I'm not done with it. So whether it's the liar who's trying to get out of trouble or the liar who thinks he or she's protecting you or the person who just lies, either way, ultimately is a problem because you wind up unable to trust the other person when you finally discover the lies and potentially even to the extent to the lies. So let's talk about a couple of things here. If indeed your spouse lies to you, first of all, that means you probably fit into the category of right at, mm, I would guess, maybe 100% of marriages. You say, what? In every marriage, does everybody lie? Not everybody lies about everything. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying that human beings sometimes will lie and do those little smiley face lies. That's a better way than calling it a little white lie. Those smiley face lies. Some people do that on occasion for whatever reason, because it just seems simpler and it's smoother and we can go on past it. What causes the problems, and, and by the way, I'm not even saying those lies are good, but Typically, people can live with those. What causes the problems is when a person starts deceiving you with those lies, because now the bigger the problem is, the more they're going to lie to you because they're more and more afraid of being punished. Now, I'm going back to the guy who had gotten the money for the gambling. 
here he is. He should have told her to begin with, as I think you would agree with me. And, of course, there would have been a brouhaha. She would have been angry. Things would have hit the fan, the proverbial fan. It would have been tough. But because he was afraid of the consequence of that, he kept making things worse and worse and worse and worse. So when you look at him, you go, okay, does that mean then that this man is one of those third kind of liars that just lies? Does it mean that she'll never be able to trust him for the rest of her life? That's what she was wondering. And I think she had every right in the world to wonder that. And so here's what she said to him. You better tell me the truth about everything now. I mean, you can't get in any bigger trouble as far as I'm concerned. So there's really nothing else to hide from me unless you've murdered somebody. And if that's the case, we're going to find that out eventually anyway. But I'm saying right now, you need to tell me because, because I don't think it can get any worse. And if we're going to have any hope of putting this back together, you need to tell me now. And so he did. He started telling her the truth about this and about that and about the other. Now, she still, she still questioned things when she would say things like, well, where did, you, where did you gamble this money? And he would say mostly in sports bars. And she would say, then, then they were drinking. Is that correct? And he'd say, yes, I was drinking. Okay, there are women there. So there were other women. You were involved with other women. Is that right? And he said, no, just drinking and gambling, no other women. And you can imagine now her having great problems believing that because all these other lies. And so what he had to do was to make himself completely transparent, open him up to everything, realizing that he could lose it all, but that continuing to lie could lose it all as well. And she actually put it on the line. And I think it made sense that she did. You either give me all truth now and give me complete access to everything and make yourself completely accountable to me for a while so I know where every penny goes so that I can finally begin to trust you again. And if you do that, then we'll try to work through this. But all of those things have to occur. Complete honesty, complete transparency, and complete accountability. And they established a kind of accountability that I don't guess anybody could live under for a lifetime because it was extreme scrutiny, but he submitted himself to that for about a year so that she could know that he was telling the truth because every dollar came through her. So she knew where all the money went and in every other way, like, you know, I need to know where you are. So put something on your smartphone so I can actually know where you are when you're going places, et cetera. And so that's how they dealt with that lie. His get out of trouble lie was only dealt with when finally he came clean, she demanded accountability, and he gave it. Now, if you ask me, okay, Joe, you work with marriages all the time, do you think it was right for her to demand that kind of accountability and to tell him after so many lies where I have no trust for you at all, either you give me that kind of accountability or I'm done, I say, yes, I think that's reasonable. Now, I'm not telling you that that's how you have to do it. But if you ask me about her, that's what she did. Is that reasonable? My response is, I think it was. Why? Because she couldn't live with that kind of uncertainty anymore. And she would demand that kind of truthfulness and a way to know he was telling the truth. Now, even then, you understand there's a certain kind of trust involved because you can't drive behind them 24 hours a day. You can't see everything they do, hear every word they say. But by making himself as accountable as he potentially could in every way possible, then 
then she was able to begin to rebuild the trust. Now, let me give you one little caveat to that one. If your spouse is lying to you and you're looking for the truth, understand, and this is particularly true, they get out of trouble liars, they will reach a point sometime where they're answering your questions and giving you the truth where they reach what we call the fear point. Now, at the fear point, that's when they get to the point where they think, if I tell you one more thing, this is all going to explode and it's going to be over and I have no chance. And whenever they get to the fear point, whenever they finally get there, and it sounds as if they have told you everything, and you look them in the eye and say, is that everything? They get out of trouble hours every time, or nearly every time, are going to look you in the eye and go, yes, that's everything, even when they know there's something else. So here's one way I suggest you use to help the get out of trouble liar when you see that he or she has gotten to that fear point. What do you do? Rather than saying, is that everything? I recommend you do it this way. Is that everything you can tell me now? Now, why is that a better question? Because you realize they've gotten to the fear point. You realize they're a get out of trouble liar. You realize probably what's going to happen next is another lie. And now you've given them a way to alleviate the fear by saying, yes, that's everything I can tell you right now. Now you don't have to worry about it. We're going to find out something more in two weeks and find out you lied to me again. Now you've left it open where the next day or the next week or the week after you can say, okay, now we've reached a little bit of place. I'm going to ask you some more questions. And you start back with the questions again. And you can remind them. I remember I asked you if, if you told me everything you could tell me right then. I'm ready for the rest of it now. Let's go a step further. And you can actually then help the get out of trouble liar tell you more truth. Rather than getting it all in one session, you probably will get it over several sessions, but it works. And when it comes to a protective liar and you find out that he or she has been lying because they think they're protecting you, when you finally discover that, that's the time to sit down with him or her. Look that person in the eye and say, if your motive was to protect me, thank you. But let me tell you from my standpoint how I was hurt by that. What I'm saying is, rather than saying, you liar, how dare you think you have the right to keep truth from me? What makes you my protector? Who died and made you boss? How did you become God? All of which makes the other person defensive and even resentful, because if they think for sure that they were really trying to protect you, they'll actually be offended that you don't appreciate at least that they had a motive that was good. And so rather than attack I would strongly recommend you speak only from your own perspective when you find out those things occurring and saying, okay, I understand what you say when you say you were trying to protect me. I hear that. But please let me tell you how I feel. I don't feel protected. I feel hurt. I feel disappointed. I feel as if I was abused because I was misled. And here's what I'm telling you. Please don't protect me. Don't make those decisions. Leave it up to me to know, to decide what it is I need to know and not know. And I'm asking you, tell me the truth, no matter what, and let me deal with it. I'm an adult. And if you come at it from that standpoint, then you probably are going to get them to the point where they'll not be protecting you anymore, but will tell you the truth. Now, for that last kind of liar, the one who just habitually lies, I suggest that you... Well, you could almost demand, and maybe demand is the right word here, that he or she get into therapy to find out what in the world is going on there and why he or she lies. And if that person doesn't get the right kind of help to learn why they do that, to learn how to stop doing that, and of course, to create accountability so that they can't do that anymore, 
I don't know how you go forward unless you can live in that kind of uncertainty. Let me ask some of those up with one couple that I know a few years ago. He lied a lot. He'd been lying since childhood. And as they were putting their marriage back together, she actually made a deal with him and it worked. It worked really well. She said, here's the deal. If you lie to me, you have 24 hours to come back and tell me the truth. And if you come back within 24 hours to tell me the truth, it'll be forgiven and we'll move on. There will not be any kind of negative consequence. But if within that 24 hours, I find out the truth on my own, then that deal is off. You don't have that 24-hour gap there where you can come back and tell me the truth. If I find out on my own within that 24 hours, negative consequences will come to bear. And because of the fact that he had done it for so many years, her deal with him was one lie and you're gone. I cannot live like this anymore. Now, remember, this is not because she's reacting to a lie or two he had told. He had had habitual patterns of lying. And therefore, that that hard, firm, one and done, which we typically suggest people not do, actually made sense there because it was, I've, I've reached my point. I can't take any more. And so you've got 24 hours. If you tell me within 24 hours, is it a lie? There's impunity. There's immunity. You will not be punished. If I find out on my own, that deal goes away. Bad things are going to happen. Or if more than 24 hours pass. And then I find out, or even if you tell me and the 24 hours have passed, bad things are going to occur. Believe it or not, even though this man had been lying for a, a many, many years, lifetime, I guess you'd say, it worked. He would occasionally tell the lie, but within 24 hours, he would come back and tell her. And to begin with, I think she questioned a few times why she had made that deal, because it happened a lot more often than she thought it would. And so she starts questioning herself, like, why did I make this deal? This guy's never going to stop lying. But through that process, the lies begin to diminish in number. And finally, they got to the point where that for several years now, she hasn't had to worry about him lying at all. She actually helped him work it out. Now, that was extremely gracious on her part. And so if you say, well, my spouse is lying to me, what do I do? You can either ignore it. Okay, I heard the lie, but it's not that big a deal, so I'm just going to forget about it. Big deal. Because sometimes lies are, just aren't worth fighting about. They just aren't. Or if it's a big enough deal, like you lied to me, and, and, and it really was trying to deceive me in some fashion where you, it was not this little smiley face thing. It was bigger than that. Then I'm going to confront you with a lie. I suggest that if you confront the other person with a lie, that you have some evidence that they lied. But hear this caveat. If you go looking for evidence... If you are keeping the, the antenna up, if you're looking behind them, if you're snooping into their emails, if you're tapping their phone, if you're following them to see where they go, and then you use that to tell them, I've caught you in a lie, be prepared for a divorce. No, it may not lead there, but it may well lead there. Why? Because if you are snooping, if you're doing things that actually violate the other person's uh, space, if you will, even though they lied, even though they did the thing they shouldn't have done. I've seen it happen uh, so many times. This pattern almost always occurs. It doesn't matter what they've done wrong. When they realize you've been snooping, you've been following, you've been sneaking, you've been doing those kinds of things rather than dealing with their behavior, they almost always attack you. And so now it's not about me and what I've done wrong. It's about how dare you follow me? How dare you steal my password and sneak into my email? How dare you 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you can do it if you wish, but if you're going to use that to catch another person lying or catch the person you're married to lying, then you might as well look at it as this is probably going to head us toward the end of our marriage. And if you need that evidence to make the marriage end, then go for it. But nearly every time, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, to everything, but nearly every time that you do that in order to catch him or her lying or deceiving you or doing something they shouldn't have done, it's probably going to come back as an attack toward you. So just realize that. Okay, a couple of more things that we've been asked about before we go to the phones. Here's one. Sonny said, all right, uh, can you talk about midlife crisis? And, 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 and both these questions I got about that came from women. So let's address it as if it's always the male, even though it's not. And here's where they're describing the midlife crisis. Everything was going fine. He was this warm, loving, kind, gentle man, and something has occurred. And now he's withdrawn, and he's quiet, and he's depressed, and he doesn't want to talk about our problems. And as a matter of fact, he wants to be left alone completely. One lady went so far as to say, and if I don't leave him alone, he starts getting violent. Now, I'm hoping what she meant when she wrote that was that he yells or screams, not that he actually hits her. Because that kind of violence, if a person becomes violent where you are actually in physical jeopardy, then I strongly recommend that you find the people in your area that help women who are abused, or even husbands that are abused for that matter. Because if there's physical violence, you need to get safe now. If the emotional violence is intense enough, you still need to get safe now. So when she says it becomes violent, let's, let's just hope that what she meant was, he reacts with anger rather than the fact that he truly becomes violent. Okay, if we talk about what this uh, midlife crisis thing is, as I read through the research about that, and, and that's where I always go to first, I go to the, the scholarly journals looking for the scholarly articles. And there's just a lot of question about whether or not there really is such a thing as midlife crisis. So rather than talking about that, since I'm not convinced that it of itself exists, let me talk about it a different way. Now, before you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, I can see the change in my husband. I can see the change in my life. Therefore, I know it's a midlife crisis. Okay. Do people change? Yes. Do things like that occur? Absolutely. I'm not denying that. I'm just not going to call it a midlife crisis because that seems to be a catch term for all kinds of different behaviors. And, and a lot of things get lumped in there that maybe shouldn't be lumped in there. So let's just talk about the change in the behavior itself rather than using that phrase, if you'll allow. So here's this good man I was married to. He was happy. He was friendly. Now he wants to be alone. Now he wants nothing to do with me. He doesn't want to talk. He doesn't want to be around the kids. And he says there's no one else. And I certainly don't see any evidence of anyone else. What do I do? Okay. If a person has made some kind of significant change, in all likelihood, there has been some kind of significant emotional event that precipitated that. What I mean is people don't change for no reason. There's going to be some reason, even if the reason is not discoverable. Now, for example, there, and, and please don't hear me trying to be a medical doctor here. I'm not. But sometimes those things occur because there are actually changes occurring in the brain. Things are changing in there chemically. They're shifting around. They're doing things differently than they used to. Or there can be changes in other parts of the body 
that have not yet been discovered and may not be for a while, but sometimes when you see those things, those, those behavioral changes sometimes are driven by physical changes, and you're not really aware that they're going on right now. And so a really good physical would be in order. And yet what you're thinking is, well, wait a minute. If he won't even talk to me about the marriage and doesn't want to talk to the kids and wants to be alone, how in the world am I going to get him to have a physical? I realize that could be extremely difficult. But understand that the changes you see could, could be the result of some physical thing that's occurring within his body that he's not aware of. And, of course, if it's a female within her body, she's not aware of. Sometimes those changes can occur because of the fact that something is going on elsewhere that matters to this person, but you might not have a strong awareness of why. For example, um, I've seen people change, and, and these are more easily figured out. I've seen people change when a parent dies, died. Oh my goodness. One guy, for example, he was the first male in his family that ever lived past 49 for like three generations. And they had died and died and died. And so when he started getting closer to 49, he began to change. Now, he was thinking that some of the changes in him were because of the fact that his body was doing things and he was going to drop dead like his dad and his grandfather and the grandfather before that one. When in actuality, what was happening was he had this anticipation that some terrible thing was going to happen to him. And because of that anticipation, he actually went into a depression and began to affect him very, very badly. Sometimes it could be because of a friend that you don't even know much about, but it was a best friend he had back when he was 12 or 13. And he heard through the grapevine somehow that that buddy committed suicide or, I mean, what I'm saying is often there's a cause, even if we don't know what that cause is, because we don't know how everything affects the person. We don't know what stories are going on out there. We don't know all the backgrounds. For example, sometimes you see people find an old lover from Facebook. And when I say lover, I'm talking about like from high school, like, wow, when we were in the uh, 11th grade, we used to date and I bumped into her on Facebook the other day. And all of a sudden, they want to get involved with this other person. And what's happening then is what I guess more like what people think of when they use that phrase midlife crisis in the sense of, what if my life had gone a different direction? What if I had been with her? What if I weren't where I am now? And so it can be a ton of different things leading to that. Can we always identify what led there? No. A good therapist can help a person figure that out. But you're saying he or she won't go to a therapist. What do I do? Well, what you do is you decide how much you can live with and what you can't. If you start considering rewards versus negative consequences. Well, let me say it a different way. Positive consequences versus negative consequences. It's kind of the way you look at life. Here's what's happening. I don't like what's happening now, but there's still some positive consequences. For example, he's still living at home. He's still bringing home his paycheck. We still are eating, paying the mortgage, etc. And he's here. If something breaks, we can fix it. And, and if I were to be in trouble. I could call and he would come and rescue me. And so while it might be more that we're roommates right now, there's at least some positives to this. The negatives, of course, is I want some intimacy. I want somebody who I can truly talk to. I want to feel like that I'm being loved, etc. And so you make a list of the negatives and you make a list of the positives and you compare the two and decide, can I live like this for a while and hope things get better? Because the positives are enough to at least equal in some fashion, the negatives, 
And so when I wish things were better, they're really not so bad. I need to do something now. And if that's the case, if that's the case, and you don't really know what's causing the other thing, then sometimes there is value in just waiting. I mean, I've balanced these things out. I've made my list. I've looked at them. And I think, okay, I can live like this for a while. Sometimes the negatives are so strong where you're saying, no, 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 I can't live like this. The negatives are too intense because I can't handle the anger. I can't handle feeling I'm alone in life. I've reached this age where I can't do that. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, then you decide you will do something. But now you've got to make another list. If I really push this, I'm going to do it the best way I know how. But if I really push this, I need to think about the potential positive outcomes if it works but I also need to consider the negative, the potential negative outcomes if it, and decide, is it worth the risk? Now, if the potential positive versus the potential negative is worth it, then you go for it. You do whatever you think is going to be the best thing to do. You make the risk. If you look at it and go, no, I don't think it is, then maybe it's not time to act yet. Maybe it's still time to wait a little while and see if you can figure out what's going on. Now, in the meantime, what do you do? Well, if the person doesn't really want to talk about the marriage, I would suggest you not push talking about the marriage. Then what do you do? Well, here's an exercise that, if you can ease the other person into it, can be of value. What you do is this. Sometimes when, well, like after dinner or something, say, hey, can would you mind sitting on the porch with me for a while tonight? No, I'm not going to talk about our marriage. Don't worry about that. I'm not going to try to bring up our problems. I'm not going to keep asking you, what's the matter? Why have you changed? I promise that's not going to happen. Just want to sit on the porch for a while. Assuming, of course, you've got a porch or a balcony or, or a patio or something, some place where just the two of you can be. And then when you're sitting there, don't bring up anything about any of the problems, anything that you know that he or she doesn't want to talk about. Don't bring up the kids' problems if they're trying to avoid that. Don't bring up sex if he or she doesn't want to have it. What do you do? You start with some of the stories from your childhood. And my suggestion is you start with stories that precede meeting each other. Just say, I want to talk a little while. You know, when I was 10 years old, one time this happened. Now, you don't make them long, drawn-out stories because the person will get bored and it will go badly on you. So you make stories that you can tell in three to four minutes at the most. And as you tell the story, you let yourself relive it so it becomes vivid. And as you tell the story, he or she can see it in his or her mind, if listening at all. And then you don't push toward anything. You say, why in the world would I do that? What are you, what are you trying to say, Joe? I'm talking about starting a new process of communication that's avoiding altogether the problem, but hopefully will begin to start a new way of communicating with each other that can actually catch on, not the first time maybe, but with time. Because if that begins to happen and you just have some minutes where you sit out there together, maybe 15 minutes and just do that. Have a cup of coffee. If, if you both have wine, have a cup of wine or a, a glass of wine with each other, et cetera, et cetera. And as that becomes more comfortable, hope that finally he or she will tell a story. But, but rather than waiting for them to do it, generally ask a story, but you make sure you ask a story that's not going to cause any negative responses from them. So like, you know, hey, I was trying to remember the other day when you told me that when you were in the sixth grade, this crazy thing happened to you in math class I was trying to my best to remember. I mean, don't, you don't have to go into great details. I'm not trying to push for it, but 
Help me remember what happened. And whatever they share, you listen. Now, if you can start doing this on some kind of a basis where you're not pushing it, it's not scheduled, it's not done every Tuesday afternoon at 730, you take advantage of whatever opportunities you can to get it going, may finally reach a point where he or she begins to tell little stories from the past. You're doing the same. That's actually teaching you guys to talk again. And the reason that it may work, it may not, the person may still avoid it, but the reason that it may work is because of the fact that you're not addressing any of the issues, any of the problems whatsoever at all. All you're trying to do is just have conversations where you talk to each other. Now, if that happens, and then when you get the next opportunity without pushing it, you do it a little bit more, next opportunity without pushing a little more, believe it or not, there can come a time when you're talking to each other and he or she is actually telling stories from the past, and you'll start getting some insights into him or her, as well as he or she getting insights into self, as well as getting insights into you. And from that, you can slowly build to truly talking to each other. And there will come a day when you have become such good friends again by talking about the innocuous, by talking about things that are not threatening right now that you can eventually start talking about those things again. Now, if you're thinking, well, we're not going to be able to do that because the kids are always around. You can even do those kind of conversations with the kids there. As a matter of fact, it might help if you have kids living at home, if they're there, or even if grown kids are visiting for dinner, that they be there because they'll start asking questions about, Hey dad, tell me more about that thing that happened in that math class. That's funny. And that starts creating communication that used to take place back when America was an agrarian society, more than a, a citified society, where after dinner and out in the country, it was called supper. People went out on the porch and sat and told those things. Not only did it submit the husband and wife, but it actually gave the kids a sense of identity. And therefore, in this particular situation I'm describing, your kids actually can become part of increasing this conversation so that gradually with time, you wind up becoming close, understanding, listening to each other again. Now, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, Joe, that's ridiculous. I, we need to talk about what needs to be talked about now. Okay, go for it. Push it. But I would suggest that you make that little list of the positives and negatives. Why might happen negatively if I do it this way? What might happen positively, positively if I do it this way? I'm suggesting a route that has least, at least as far as I can think of, the least potential negativity. And with time, the greatest potential positivity to get your spouse to actually talk to you. And if you can do that, you can get past these other things. Because once you can restore communication. We're actually talking to each other. If your spouse is depressed, that's when you can do things like say, honey, it sure seems to me that you're depressed. I, I know you may not be, but it just seems that way. I tell you what, there's a thing online called the PHQ-9. That's the public health questionnaire, the nine question version. PHQ-9, public health questionnaire nine. Let's, would you just mind taking that and see if it maybe it says that possibly you might be depressed? And if so, maybe go see the doc and talk to him or her about that. And that's how you lead into those things, trying not to confront, but coming through the back door, if you will, all those kinds of things. Now, let's move to another question very quickly. That's this one. People say, okay, my spouse is involved with another person 
and he or she is really heavily involved, and let's say the spouse has already moved down, and my spouse is telling me, okay, now, I don't want you to tell anybody what I'm really doing. Now, obviously, people know that we're separated, but I need you to protect me because my reputation will be ruined. Don't tell anybody that I'm involved with that other woman. Don't tell anybody what's really going on with us. And as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I, I am going to divorce you for her. And when I do, I'll make things better for you financially if you help protect my reputation. Because I don't want people that, that I used to go to church with to know. I don't want my family to know, particularly not my mom, not my dad. And therefore, you don't need to tell anybody anything bad about me. And in the long run, that'll work for your advantage because I'll do these nice things for you. And our kids don't know, need to know either. And when finally we have to tell them we're splitting up, you need to tell them it's just because we can't get along. We both tried really hard. And, and tell them what I want you to tell them so everything works out good for me. I get that kind of question all the time. You say, well, what do you suggest? Okay. It's going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. So <laughs> listen just a minute or two with me, if you will. First of all, I recommend that you do not go telling other people too early. We call that poisoning the well. That's when you try to get people on your side. And so you run over to people at church where he is still involved or used to be involved and has a lot of friends. And you tell them all he's having an affair. And that word spreads like wildfire. Or you go see his mom or his dad or his sister or brother or somebody else that's related to him. And you say, I'm just telling you this because I really need your help. Your, your son, your brother is doing this terrible thing. He's involved with this other woman and you just need to know. All of that's going to get back to him. And could there come a time when that probably needs to be known? And the answer is yes. But if you do it early on and poison that well, in all likelihood, it's not going to be all those people rallying around you and doing everything they can to bring him back. It's going to be a lot of gossip spread among a lot of people that are not his family. And if they are his family, you're going to have one or two responses, either total indignation toward you, like, well, yes, but he's told us how bad you are, and so I can understand why he does that. Or, or we're going to be on your side, and they will be for a while until finally they realize that they might lose their relationship with him. And then most of them will switch over and be on his side. Not everybody, not everybody does that. Sometimes they'll still say what my son or my daughter's doing is wrong. I'm still, I'm still with you. I want this to work out. I am not going to help him do this wrong thing they're doing, but even these good church folks, these good God fearing people who are totally against adultery it's amazing how with time will actually wind up being on the side of their son or daughter in the sense of saying nothing. They let them come. They let them bring the lover to their house. They, they bring them to dinner, those kinds of things. And they don't say anything at all. They don't necessarily approve, but it's my child and I don't want to lose relationship to him. So while you would hope those people would be on your side, I don't know that you can count on that. And so at the outside, Telling all those kinds of people and poisoning the well, even telling your own mom and dad, your own relatives and poisoning the well can work against you because if indeed you do work it out and you've told mom and dad all those terrible things that your husband and wife has done, they're going to have trouble accepting him or her back if you try to put the marriage back together. They're the ones that are going to be thinking, no, don't do that. He'll hurt you again. And they'll have trouble forgiving him. Now, can they do it? Well, they can. I've seen it happen a lot of times, so it makes it rougher. So at the outset, I think it probably is wise that you don't go telling other people, but it's not because you're trying to facilitate what he's doing. 
it's because it's not time to do that yet. Right now, I have other things I need to do to try to salvage this. Now, unfortunately, I can't describe all that in detail here. That's why we suggest you get involved in our programs like Save My Marriage. If you want to know about that, you go to marriagehelper.com. That's marriagehelper.com marriagehelper slash Save my marriage, all one word, no spaces, marriagehelper.com slash save my marriage. There's a 10-week program there you can get involved with, and we'll give you guidelines over a 10-week period, step-by-step, a step of what you do. Now, I don't have time to explain all that here, but there are things to do before you tell other people. Now, let me go back to the other side of that, which makes it sound like I'm going to be talking about the other side of my mouth. And I apologize for that, but you understand that as time passes, things shift. And strategy changes. So the strategy at first of not poisoning the well, and of course you never want to quote poison the well, end quote, but there comes a time when you will need a support system. There will come a time when there are people who may need to do an intervention. So I can't tell you the exact time and the exact date, but when finally you begin to realize that this behavior is not going to change and he or she is now becoming much more comfortable being involved in those things he or she shouldn't be involved in. And I'm afraid if we let this go much longer and then really bad behavior is going to occur, then it comes a time when you would do an intervention. And when you do an intervention, you will have to involve other people. It can't be done by you. And we have free resources telling you how to do that. If, again, if you go to the marriagehelper.com website, there's a page there about intervention. Uh, there are two 45-minute audios on there that will explain it to you. And then there's also a, an ebook uh, that you can download that will tell you how to do it. It's like 30 or 40 pages long. And if he or she says, okay, now it's time for us to tell people, but you need to tell our kids that we tried hard and couldn't just along and, and, and make sure that the kids don't think I'm a villain, don't buy into that is my suggestion. If indeed you want the marriage to last, and if indeed he's left you for another woman or she's left you for another man, or got to go off in some lifestyle that he or she shouldn't be living in, and they want you to sit there and make it appear to the kids that everything's hunky-dory, it's just the two of you finally decided you can't get along. If it were I, I certainly wouldn't do that at all. And when it is time to tell the kids... It should be the spouse who is leaving that does it. And I think it's quite reasonable for you to look him or her in the eye and say, it's time for the kids to know because they're going to hear about it from other people. I mean, too many things are going on out there. And as much as it will hurt to hear it from you, it's going to hurt a whole lot more to hear it from somebody else. Therefore, you need to tell them now if you care about them at all because this is just going to be too painful. And when you tell them, respect them enough to tell them the truth. Now, understand that that will be modified by the age of the children. If a child is four, you tell it differently than if the child's 14. And if the child's 14, differently than if the child's 24. You understand that. You make it age appropriate. But the one who is the one ending the marriage, leaving, should be the one to do it. And it's quite reasonable, I think to insist that he or she does it and to let them know. And when the kids, if you, when you're telling them, don't you dare say that mom and I decided to split up because I didn't decide that you did. And if they look at me and they say, mom, do you really want out of this marriage? I'm going to tell them the truth. No, I wish we could work things out. Now understand I'm saying mom, it could be just the other way around. It might be mom who's leaving and it might be dad who's there. And he'll answer the kids questions by saying, no, 
No, I'd like to work these things out. You don't lie to your children to make it easier for your spouse. Now, of course, you do what you think is right. But I'm telling you that based on the experience I have with people, my suggestion is that you do not lie to your children to make things easier for your spouse. And you don't support a lie told by your spouse to the children. Now, at the same time, be very careful not to throw your spouse under the bus because he is still their dad. She is still their mom and saying negative, mean, terrible things about him or her is not going to do good for your children at all. Please don't ever let them become a pawn in this. They'll be hurt badly enough as it is. And they're going to hurt a whole lot more if you castigate your spouse. And though you cannot control it, your spouse may say negative things about you to your children. They may hear those things and you can't stop that. If you think that's a possibility or you hear that it is occurring, it's very reasonable to say, listen, I know that you're vilifying me. I'm not here to defend myself, but I am asking you in the name of God and for the sake of the love for our children, don't do this to them. And if your children come to you with their pain and their agony, you let them know, I love you with all my heart. I'm here. I'll be with you no matter what. If they start expressing their pain toward their dad or their mom, don't add to the pain by saying, you're right. That's terrible. They're evil. Don't do that. Just say, I understand you're hurt. I am so sorry for the pain you have. You hold them close. You love them. And, and then you continue to do things with them in addition to that. Like take them to the park when you can take them, take them swimming when you can help them have other activities in their lives. So this doesn't become the thing that permeates everything they think and do. So you love your children all that you have, but you do not help your spouse lie to them. Spouse refuses to tell the truth to your children. And you realize that he or she will soon be caught. And the word's going to come to the kids through other people. Then I think it's time where you sit down and say, I need to tell you something. I know it's going to hurt. And then when you say it, you say it as gently as you can, causing them as little pain as you can. All right, moving to another couple of things very quickly. My, my, when some people say, well, my mate still lives at home, but is involved emotionally with somebody else. I'm trying to save the marriage. And, and my mate says, if I'll just be patient with this run, its course, everything will be fine. Am I a fool to believe that? Right, is my spouse using me? What do I do? Okay. This is a matter of your own level of pain. Here's what I mean. If indeed your spouse is still at home, here's some advantages. Even if they're involved emotionally or even sexually with another person, if they're still living at home, here are some positives for you. At least you still have interaction with each other to some degree. At least you're having some way to see each other, talk to each other, communicate with each other. I'm assuming that it could be they're living in the basement going out the back window and you don't see them at all. And of course that's the case. Then that changes everything I'm talking about here. But if you're still having some kind of interaction with him or her, if that's still occurring and you say, okay, this hurts, but at least now we're having some way to interact. And I think I'm making progress. If you can handle that, if you can tolerate that pain, then yes, there's some advantage to letting him or her live at home because you're still having access to them at whatever point that becomes destructive to your emotions, to your heart, to your mind, to your soul, or destructive to your children because of the fact that it's ripping them apart, seeing dad or mom walk out the door all the time. Or if you finally decide it's destructive to your spouse because of the fact that you are now letting him or her live in the valley. You say, what's the valley? The valley doesn't necessarily involve them living at home. It's when they have a situation where 
they think they're getting along with you just fine and they're getting along with the lover just fine and they don't have to make a decision. Now, sometimes you can let them live in a valley for a while just because of the fact you're still having interaction with them and there's some value to having interaction with them and you're thinking, okay, this, this gives us a chance. But at some point, either you reach the level where it's tearing you up and you shouldn't let that continue, or it's really causing tremendous emotional problems for the kids and more than they should be bearing, or it's letting the other person think, wow, I don't have to do a thing. I can just live like this forever. I can be involved with you. I can be involved with the other person. I don't have to do a thing. I'll just stay in this valley and live like this. That, in my estimation, is very destructive behavior for him or her. So can I tell you the exact hour, day, time when that occurs? No, it has to be a decision that you make. When you sit down and do those kinds of things of listening to positive, listening to negatives and say, no, no, I, I have tried my best. I've taken advantage of the fact that he or she's continued to live here for a while. And that's been good because we've had some interaction, but this is destructive to him or to her, to me, to the children, whatever. I've even recently seen a conversation to a place on Facebook where uh, one lady was saying, I still want to be involved with other men. And I'll live here and I'm married, you'll be fine as long as you let me be involved with other men. I saw a lot of reaction to that underneath where people were talking about all the stories about that, about, yeah, my wife wanted that. Let me tell you how terribly that turned out. Or my husband wanted that. Let me ter- tell you how terribly that turned out. In my estimation, if you're letting a person do that, it's destructive to him or her. Obviously, you make your own decisions. I don't make them for you. But it's destructive to him or her. And I don't know why in the world you would let that person do that. Think, if nothing else, what it does to your own self-esteem, your own view of you. So is there ever time to give an ultimatum? Either this stops or this thing's going to occur. Either you stop sleeping with that man or I'm going to file for divorce. Yes, there are times for ultimatums. But remember, ultimatums are made with realization that the person may stop, but the person may well continue and you will have to follow through on the ultimatum. Therefore, do not make an ultimatum unless you are really going to follow through on it. And if you are, then yes, there's a time to do that. And if you're thinking, well, that'll be the end of my marriage. Remember what we talked about when we first started the program. And that's this. It's the question you ask yourself of comparing the positives to the negatives. Sometimes, Sometimes it actually is going to be the most positive. The more good's going to come to you and even to your children, believe it or not, when you decide this is going to be the end of the marriage. But it's not because of your own hardness of heart. It's not because of your being mean or cruel. It's not because you're not caring and loving. It's not because you're not trying to do everything. It's because of the fact that the behavior of the spouse is destructive to him or to you or to your children or maybe even to other people. And you're going to have to end that because it's the best for all in the long run. You see, I'm totally against divorce. Divorce is just terrible. But sometimes it's still, unfortunately, the better choice because so much more destruction is going to occur if the person continues to do what they're doing with no boundaries, no barriers. They can keep doing those things. It is so ultimately destructive. And when that's the case, as sad as it is, as bad as it is, as much as we all hate it, You don't divorce because, aha, I paid you off, you rascal. You divorce in great pain, actually, because I love you. 
but I cannot let this behavior continue any longer. Now, I'm going to go to a call. I realize I've gone long into the program before taking a call. I need to tell you something about what's going to happen next week very quickly. Richard and Petra, my good friends, he had been involved in limerence for quite some time with another woman to the point that he actually got Petra to move thousands of miles away. It looked as if there was no hope for the marriage whatsoever at all. He was, quote, madly in love with the other person. And yet, it all turned around. The marriage was saved, and they're doing amazingly well today. Popular guests I've ever had on this program, and they will be back a week from tonight. I guess that makes it the 21st day of June. They'll be back on the 21st of June. Richard and Peter are telling their story and taking your calls. But right now, let's take a call before we end this program tonight. I'm going to area code 712. I am so sorry you had to wait so long. Welcome. You're on the Joe Bean Show. Hello? Yes. Are you there? I am here. Okay, can you give me a first name to call you, please? Sylvia. Okay, Sylvia. How can, first of all, thank you for holding so long. I apologize for being so long. How can I help you tonight, Sylvia? Uh, first of all, I just want to say um, happy anniversary. Well, thank and you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Congratulations. Yes, um, 29 years ago today, Alice remarried me after I left her for another woman, was gone, divorced her, and was gone for three years. Can you imagine the strength on her part to forgive and take me back. I'm trying. I'm trying. And I <laughs> hope I hope that I don't have to be as strong as her, but if I have to be, then I hope I am. Well, good for you, Celia. So how can I help you tonight, my friend? Well, you kind of touched on it a little bit. I was actually going to ask about the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is, um, he, I, I don't even know for sure. I, I know that, um, he started working on different shifts um, last fall at work, and he, at some point in time during late fall or early or around November, December, he um, was started talking to a woman at work more and more. Um, I found a message in his Facebook, discussed it with him. He assured me that it was nothing, and long story short. Um, By February, he had started to say that he didn't want um, our marriage, that he just didn't, he wasn't sure about it anymore, and he wanted to separate. And um, fast forward to the middle of March, um, I found messages that they had, um, they had been together sexually. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I had not found your program at this point in time. I think I found it about a week later. But um, I had a, f- a friend, um, and I guess I should say the first message is I didn't sleeping together. They were just, it appeared that they had, they were flirting very, very, very heavily. Um, and so I took that as, or she felt, my friend felt that it would be a good solution to hand him some clothes and tell him to think about things. And so I did. I gave him one day's worth of worth of clothing and asked him, I just handed it to him and um, he came back the next day for his things and left. Hmm. Now, um, two more months passed. He, oh, I should say, he left and moved in with, um, it's a soap opera really, I'm sorry, but it's, (laughs) um, he moved in with with, um, the other woman and the other woman's boyfriend. Hmm. Well, the other woman and her boyfriend? Yep. So she had a boyfriend, and he moved in with both has, of them. Has. 
a boyfriend. Had a boyfriend. Yep. Okay. Yep, she is still involved with him, has not left him. Um, my Well, so two weeks ago, my husband, um, his siblings do all know. I told one sister, I confided in one sister who I really trust, and I do trust her. I still trust her. Um, but the rest of his family now knows, or the majority of his family now knows, it, mm-hmm. um, mostly because she she told them, not, you know, in a loving way, but he is still talking to all of them, and I have asked them to continue to talk to him, even if it has nothing to do with me or our relationship, just maintain communication with him, because okay. he needs you in his life. Okay. And so, um, I think the majority of his family is doing well with that, or at least attempting to. He's, they noticed him, before they even knew anything was going on, they noticed him pulling away. And okay. all of his, he doesn't have family that lives here, so it was all Communication was by phone, mm-hmm. um, and so they knew that something was going on. Without you know, I didn't even have to say anything. They could tell that he was different. Okay, so so with all this going on, what? How can I help you? What can I do for you? I know. I'm sorry. So I didn't mean to go drag on it's so okay. long. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so I what I was trying to get to at the point of the through this was that. Um, he works with the other woman and the other woman's boyfriend. They all work together at the same place. Um, however, because because of his sister's influence, I believe it has to do with his sister's influence, and there's three of them that have been particularly involved um, at some point. Um, he moved home. Um, it started as him sleeping in a different room mm-hmm. and has he's been sleeping in, in bed with me. I have been doing my best to maintain um, um, a boundary with him mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. no, that's a lot of information, no intercourse is basically mm-hmm. where I've, that boundary um, is, is very difficult to set because at no point in time has he ever wanted to stop that with me. He's continued to feel that attraction or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's really a boundary that I've had to put in place because he's happy. I feel like he's happy to be with both. Um, okay, so and he's still emotionally involved with her. He's still emotionally involved with her. Is he still, he still involved, involved with her yes. sexually? Yes. Yes. He's still involved with her sexually, you're sure? Well, he, kinda, he came home with Hickey's a couple of days ago, and he spent the whole weekend with her pretty much. Okay. All right. The one part I'm having trouble understanding here, okay, and, and forgive me that I'm just not getting this. No, she's it's okay. She's living with a boyfriend, so she's sleeping with a boyfriend. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. And he knows that, and that's okay with him. Yeah. I, you know, okay. I don't know if it's okay with him. I think he accepts it because. Okay, I got you. It, that's, right. that's where it's at. You know what right. I mean? I mean, he's. Okay, so. He's, all right, so you let him sleep in the same bed with you, but you don't have any course with him. And, and so I'm asking again, what is it that I can help you with, my friend? How I just want to know about the valley, and I you touched on it, like I said, but how? Okay, the valley. You know, what then, what, should, what mm-hmm. kind of boundary should I be maintaining, and how? Mm-hmm. Just how do I? How do I manage this? And you know okay. what I mean, because I have had people tell me that you have said the fact that he is home is is better than him being. So being gone, and so mm-hmm. I just want to know, you know, but because he did leave, I did lose that. Right. You know, I don't really have, I, I can't right. put a whole bunch of boundaries in place without him 
I understand. I'm, I'm with you. What I hear you saying is this. If I say, okay, if you say involved with her, you've got to move out, then based on past behavior, he's going to move yeah. out. So you fully will expect that to happen. And so really what it boils down to, Sylvia, is what can you live with? You're saying, okay, he's sleeping in the same bed with me. Obviously, you still love this man. You wouldn't let that man mm-hmm. be in your bed if you didn't love him, right? Right. Okay, so you love the guy, and you want him to stop this. Now, what you have to decide for you is this. Okay, do I throw him out and end it all together because of the fact that he's still involved with this woman? Or, at this point, can I emotionally handle the fact that he's living in my house, sleeping in my bed, and still involved with her? Now, there is an advantage to that if you can, in the sense that you're having communication with him, and so it does give you opportunity to make these things work. On the other hand, if it, at, if, if it with time destroys your self-esteem, if you start looking in the mirror going, what am I doing? Am I crazy? Am I just being used? Do I have no backbone? Do, it, do I have no worth of value? Have you had any of those kind of thoughts? I mean, I have a passing. It would be crazy. I feel like it would be crazy not to. But <laughs> Okay. It's reasonable <laughs> that you would. I fully expected that you would have had those thoughts. Now, is there any kind of conversation going on with him? For example, he, okay, he's, he's living in your house. He's sleeping in your bed. Are you having any kind of conversations about your relationship at all? No. Are we having communication? Is there communication? Yes, we have. I feel like I've avoided talking about the relationship at all because Mm -hmm. of other, you know, just because you're not supposed to. But I'm kind of in this awkward situation now for the past week or so that, you know, he has been – he slept here several times in, in my bed. He, mm-hmm. um, yet I think I've been mm-hmm. trying not to discuss the relationship because, you well, know, at this point in time, he says he doesn't, he doesn't want it. Okay. He's yet saying he, he doesn't want to discuss it or doesn't want the relationship. Well, he, I think he knows how I feel about it. I'm a, I consider myself a Christian woman. I don't mm-hmm. feel like, and I've told him that, in the beginning, I said things to him like, I will never be the other woman, and I know you're right. not telling her about me, so this is going to stop. Okay. Um, the, do, you, do you think there's any part of him that still wants to be married to you? That's the question I'm asking. Yes. Okay. It, it, is okay. it is okay to have conversations about the relationship. It really is, as long as you're not pushing, whining, pleading, begging, those kinds of things. Because when you do that, the other person typically runs the other way. But to be able to sit down with him and look him in the eye when you're having dinner together or you're just sitting around in the, after, in the evenings or whatever saying, can I tell you how I feel? And then you start talking about without attacking him like, you terrible guy, this is what you're doing. But, but saying things like, you know, whether you like it or not, I love you. And I feel as if there's a part of you that David loves me or you wouldn't be here. I also am feeling um, this, this great hurt within me that though you love me, you also don't love me. If you were to have those kind of conversations, just talking about from your heart, your viewpoint, your standpoint, how do you think he would react? Um, I think he would shut down because he, because he, anything, anytime something hurts him, he shuts down. And so he just kind of doesn't let himself feel things emotionally because of closes it off. In order to not have to feel it. I understand. But at some point, 
you realize you're going to have to have some kind of conversation like that because at some yeah. point, at some point, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and think about choking this guy to death. It's going to be, you know, <laughs> oh, Joe. You, know you know what I'm oh, talking about, right? It's like, I, you know, I'm, I love you and yet this is hurting me and I can't talk to you. And, and right now it's like you're living in two worlds and I'm not making you choose between the two. That's what we call the valley. It's exactly what we call the valley. Call the valley. And if, living there with you, he's actually having conversations with you of any kind where you're actually beginning to build friendship again and those kinds of things, then yes, that's a good thing. I mean, that is a good I, and thing. I feel, like, I feel like we are. I do good. feel like in the good. last couple of weeks we've, we have, you know, things well, aren't as, as awkward okay. with us, but at the same then, time it's, it's hard, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> sure, sure it's hard. I think it has to fall actually back to you, Sylvia, where at some point, at some point you're going to say, I can't do that anymore. Now, hopefully what happens, hopefully what happens is that that friendship actually does develop and you guys actually do start breaking things toward the right direction before you get to that point. If that's the case, then you're going to look back and have this story of, hey, I did something that was like superhuman. I actually let this guy sleep in my bed when I knew he was still emotionally involved with that other woman. But let me tell you how it worked out. In the long run, it broke through his barriers. We're back together. He loves me. I love him. And that's going to be a fantastic and amazing story if that happens. And it may. It really may. The question is, will that happen before you reach the point of losing your own respect, of of feeling... I can't, ha- I just can't live like this anymore because whenever you get there, then that's when you're really going to need for your own sake, as much as you love this guy for your own sake, to look him in the eye and go, this is not going to happen. I will not live like this. You will make a choice one way or the other. And if you choose not me, then these are the consequences that are going to occur. Not because I hate you, not because as a matter of fact, I love you. It's because I love you. I'm demanding this. Now, whenever that point comes, I suggest, suggest strongly you do that. I hope and pray that what you're doing now works and he comes to his senses before you get there. But you do understand that you can't live like this the rest of your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be calling. Yeah. You know that, right? Right. Right. So it's, and, it's up to you to decide when that is, Sylvia. Um, okay. I had one more question. Okay. All right. Oh, gone. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Oh, now you're sounding like There's me. There's so and much I'm, to think uh, about. <laughs> uh, I'm a whole lot older than you. It's okay for me to forget those things. You sound like a young woman. <laughs> I am 27. Well, you sound to me, my friend, like an exceptionally strong 27-year-old. I. I am amazed and admire the level of strength you have. Most people cannot do what you're doing. As a matter of fact, there are some people that would think you're an absolute idiot for doing it. But you know, you know you're doing it because of love. And you know that you're only able to do it because you are strong. And so even for those people who would never understand it and would say, no, 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 never do that. I admire you. But when it comes time, my friend, when it comes time, Sylvia, please make that move because I would hate for a strong, confident woman like you to lose confidence in herself. Don't let it get that far. I beg you, my friend. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you you have a good evening, Sylvia. All right. Thanks. You too. Okay. And we're going from Sioux City, Iowa, over to Sacramento, California. Let's take this call from Sacramento. Hello, area code 916. 
916, you're on the Joe Beam Show. Hi, Joe. Um, I called you about last year, about this time. Um, My husband and I have a business together, and at at that time, he had told me he just wanted a divorce. He wanted out, and and so I was devastated. And so I listened to all your your um, uh, your shows, even if they're uh-huh. pre-recorded. And I even joined the Webster with um, with um, oh, I can't remember her name. She helps you there at the. Oh, uh, oh, she uh, has that, Kimberly, Kimberly Holmes. Yes, with Kimberly. Yes. yes I haven't yes. been able to because I just jo- I just joined last week, and for some reason I was having trouble to log on. So hopefully this weekend I can log on. But um, okay, my my question is, as I was going through all this um, since last year, um, I have we have three sons and we've been married twenty four years, and mm-hmm. so um, as, as we were going through all this, and he had files for he, he he never filed he just went to go see an attorney and he sent me to go see an attorney and I assume if I get an expensive attorney he wouldn't want the divorce, but he mm-hmm. didn't care he paid, so. Mm-hmm. Um, my son, my middle son, because of going through all this, uh, had a nervous breakdown, and he got he was lost for like three or four days, and we oh, finally wow. found him out in Southern California, and we had to go pick him up, my husband and I, and my husband broke down when he saw my son in jail, and he oh, my, my son literally, my son li- literally lost it, Joe. So, um, um, we he was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenic because mm-hmm. of the stress in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were waiting for my son to get better, and I told him he needed to move out because I couldn't see my son going through all that. Um, mm-hmm. when, when, he, when he wanted to leave again, my son had another nervous breakdown. This time he was caught running through um, one of the main highways here, and he was uh, again hospitalized. I'm so again, sorry. And, yeah, and then again my husband tried to leave again, and my son had another nervous breakdown, so told a three nervous breakdown and hospitalized it all three times. When mm-hmm. finally my husband said, I'm leaving in January, um, I'll be out of here before, because our anniversary is February 16th, so it was obvious he didn't want to spend the anniversary with us. And so right. he was supposed to move out, but he never did because then he was hospitalized and is now on dialysis three times a week. And on dialysis. Hmm. Yes, on dialysis and has contacted um, hepatitis B and lupus. Wow. Wow. And so I'm clean. I went to the doctor, and thank God everything came out better with me. But with that said, Joe, where do I draw the line? Because not only is he there, and he's not supposed to be sexually active, but I found out, because he's been denying it the whole time, but one of our employees is who he's having an affair with, and it's because I went into his phone. I found it. He doesn't know that I found it. He right. doesn't know that I know, but I mm-hmm. found a lot of evidence in there, including with pictures uh, of him and this woman that is our employee. But at mm-hmm. this point, um, I, I I did tell him he needed to move out of our bedroom because he was still sleeping with me. And like you told the other caller, he wouldn't be sleeping with me if I didn't love him. Right. Um, but at that point, I said, you know, that's enough. You need to either go ahead and move out or you're in, you know, this is your home too, or you can sleep downstairs. So the last four nights, he's been sleeping downstairs, but not only sleeping downstairs, he literally jams the door so that nobody can go in there. And yeah. my my youngest son, um, 
got a job out of town, and so when he went to try to talk to him, he wouldn't have anything to do with my youngest son. He wouldn't. So he sorry. didn't want to talk to him. And it so sounds it's like a really terrible, a, terrible situation. So how how can I help is, you? What can I do for you? Well, I just don't know what – I went to go see the attorney. It's been a busy day for me because I, I did go see the attorney. Mm-hmm. Not only is he denying that we're married because we don't have common law marriage here in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, And we got married at a church with my pastor, but um, we never did go pick up a license. I assumed by me signing papers at the church, and I really did, Joe, I really assumed that by me signing right. papers at the church, everything was taken care of. But so what does your attorney say? So, does, your, does your attorney say that well, you guys are legally married? Well, because he doesn't have a paper in front of him. There is laws that will cover me, but it has mm-hmm. to go. If if my husband chooses not to sign that paper, then it's going to cost another $20,000. And if, as you know, California is very expensive. So, what, so do you want? Um, what, what do you really want to do? What do you want to do? I wish I could save the marriage, but at this point, I, I don't know if there's any turning back because he's obviously not in love with me. He's in love with this other woman, even though I'm praying for him. And I know Kim and, and you guys have that those articles that he's in love with somebody else. But uh-huh. at this point is, yeah, I, I don't know if, I, if we're going to go, because even the attorney told me if I had that paper in front of me saying that you guys were married, I would tell you to write it out because as sick as he is, he begged him to live the rest of the year. That's how sick he is, Joe. But he's still so, having an so, affair. So what your attorney is saying is this. Your attorney is saying, don't do anything. Just stick it out. And your attorney is saying that because of the fact that it's going to help you financially if, if he's still there in the home with you, if indeed he's that sick, and if indeed he's facing death, then it's to your advantage that, that you don't do anything. That's what the attorney is saying. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, he, he did say that. But with the other hand, because I don't have a paper in front of me saying that we're legally mm-hmm. bound, it could go into probation if he passes away. And we have a business and homes and, and a lot of, you know, right. and, and if it goes into that, I'll be kicked out of the home. And if we right. do take it to court, there's people in court that sit there and actually pick up the, what you're talking about. And if they see a lot of assets, right. especially like in a divorce court, they'll, right. they'll report it to the, to the IRS and they get a cut from that. I had no idea right. they had people like that. Right. And so well, they're just, okay. they're, we're losing Unfor- it away. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm totally out of time. So let me say this before I go. I have to go. Here's number one. I would definitely do whatever my attorney said do. When it comes to the marriage itself, and I realize that you're very hurt because he's been sleeping with this woman, and, and I realize you want to do something about that. But if indeed this man is truly facing death, if he's going to be dead before the end of the year, then I don't know why you would feel compelled to do anything because, because this is going to come to an end. It's definitely going to end. And because it is going to come to an end, I would follow my attorney's advice all the way, whatever he says do, so that, that, I, that you come out the best you possibly can and your children come out the best they possibly can. But as far as a marriage thing is concerned, my suggestion is, based on the fact that he's dying, that there is no value to you to do anything other than to listen to your attorney. Now, of course, mm-hmm. you make your own decisions, but, but that's mm-hmm. what I would do if it were I. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I am so sorry. Please listen that's to your okay. attorney. Okay, may God be I with will. you. May God be with you all. Thank you.